0: Hello and welcome to the Blue Mountain Center Podcast. My name is Luke and I'm joined by... Zohar. Uh, Zohar, what's going on at BMC this week?
1: Well, at BMC this week, we've had a little visitor. Um, His name is Spiny Norman and he is a woodchuck who has been terrorizing the garden. Um, When you
0: say terrorizing, what kind of damage has he wrought?
1: He has eaten all of the lettuce, including the new up-and-coming baby lettuces that we're going to feed a salad for the next two months. And he's eaten all of the kale in the garden. He's very on-trend in terms Mm -hmm. of his vegetable consumption. Absolutely. And he's started... Oh, he's deadheaded a lot of sunflowers.
0: Yeah, that, to me, was the biggest surprise, I I would say.
1: Yeah, no, I thought woodchucks liked vegetables, Mm -hmm. not flowers but i guess you know they like it all Mm -hmm. vegetation Mm -hmm. so um that's been fun just kidding (laughs) and uh but we had a fun time the other day luke you and i we were putting up fencing to try and funnel the woodchuck into a humane trap in the garden um, and as we were doing this, one of the residents was playing, practicing accordion in the garden shed, and so we have this, like, kind of funky klezmer background music to our woodchuck trapping extravaganza. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty entertaining. That resident's
0: name is Claire Dolan, by the way, and, um... I, I make this joke when we go out on the walkabout on the first uh, this first full day of the session. Where I, and I borrowed from Ben Strader, who used to do the tour. And um, when we get to the garden shed, I always say um, that this is where you can go um, if you are... This is the bad musician shed. This is where you can go if you are a bad musician to practice. And Claire is not a bad musician at all. And in fact, it was a lovely soundtrack, a very funny soundtrack to uh, listen to while we were putting up the... Uh,
1: Oh, yeah. Hilarious soundtrack. Yeah. It, it made me smile from ear to ear at the ridiculousness of the situation we found ourselves in.
0: <laughs> because you knew all the songs, too, right?
1: Yeah, I did, because I went to a Jewish sleepaway camp, and they were all, like, Israeli dances mm-hmm. that I I know choreographed dance moves to them as well.
0: hmm So we have very talented musicians uh, <laughs> in the bad musicians shed, it turns out, so it's a bit of a misnomer, but... Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, who did you talk to this week?
1: Uh, This week, I talked to Jenny Johnson. She is an award-winning poet and teacher at the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, And we had a pretty fun conversation. I'm excited for you to hear it.
0: I can't wait to listen to it. Jenny was a really fun resident to have around here. She was very interested in nature. Big fan of loons. Um, She read this book called The Loon Book while she was here. Um, and uh, yeah, I can't wait to listen So Yeah,
1: and she's a great poet And she reads a poem during the podcast Which is really fun
0: mm. I like that idea Teaser. Yeah, spoiler alert <laughs> <laughs> Alright, let's listen to it
2: your paddle? It was wonderful. Where'd you go? We went out to the jumping rock, and and it was beautiful, but I didn't jump. You didn't jump? Did you think about it? I thought about it, but the way the rock sloped, I'm not a big run and jump kind of person. I'm more of a stand and dive. Mm-hmm. So...
1: Yeah, I'm not a big run and jump person. Yeah. I think we've talked about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. I scoot into the water.
2: Yeah, so I went and scooted in, and I admired how amazing the island was. Cool. Yeah.
1: Um. So, Jenny, you're a poet. Yes. Uh, how long have you been writing
2: poetry for? Um, Zohar, thanks for having me on this podcast. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> uh... I've been writing poems since I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. What, what think, inspired you to write your first poem? Um, I just think poems were just like a place I could go to reflect. And also, um, also it's it's like I never could play an instrument, but it was a way that... I could sort of access music in my head, yeah <laughs>
1: and when did you know that writing poetry was what you wanted to do mm-hmm. with your life?
2: well, i guess if I guess I feel like um that being a poet is just like one of many identities that I have. And it's one that I've like um I've never like totally broken up with, but we've ha we've gone back and forth in terms of like moments in my life when I would say to someone, "Yeah, I write poetry or moments in my life when I would instead say, "I'm a teacher, but sometimes I write poems to now I would say that i um I'm a poet and a teacher, so it's just a It's an identity I've had to like figure out how to um, integrate into my being, and I'm happiest. I'm hap. I'm happy now that I figured that out. Teacher and poet. Yeah, teacher and poet. What do you teach? I teach. um, Currently, I am a lecturer at the University of Pittsburgh, and I teach um, in the English department. Um, I teach creative writing classes, and I teach a composition class that. its focus is gender studies. So um I just like teach writing like to teach writing and I like to work with students to help them ask hard questions and figure out like what are their questions and how can they use writing as a means to explore them.
1: Do the teaching and poetry influence each other? I think
2: sometimes I've been teaching a class um called Sentence Shop Experiments in Time and Space and it's just it's just a class solely focused on all of the things that a sentence can do um and so in teaching the class I'm 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 learning things about sentences that I didn't know like what? um let me think. Um well, I'm interested in um that when you write a sentence, uh you're, there there's so many different ways you can say the same thing. So, you can take a sentence and you could rearrange it eight different ways. And each way might put emphasis on something different. So, let me try to be more specific. Um, if, okay, so say I wanted to write a sentence where you felt, um, where, where you got to experience going and jumping off the rock um, and the experience of canoeing out to the rock. I could write a sentence where I just wrote a simple sentence and you were just like, hmm. Or I could write a sentence where maybe you would be sort of pleasurably lost in the sentence because I would start out and... I would describe as, like, the main clause of the sentence, like, standing up on the rock. But then I would just, like, let the sentence get really long and drift off and describe, like, um, what I saw in one direction, what I saw in another direction, what what happens to be going on today in the newspaper, Uh, um, a conversation I had with Zohar this morning at breakfast. All in one sentence? Yeah, you could put all that in one sentence that maybe to sort of capture um, a whole stream of thought. A whole like like to capture like simultaneous time because sometimes a sentence is just one big measure of a thought. Um, so um, so I like thinking about that and then thinking about like that. Um, well, usually like the main not to get too grammatical, but the main subject and verb in a sentence is the part where um, you most remember. Like your brain most remembers that part. So where am I going to put that part? I'm going to put at the beginning. I can put at the end. Put in the middle, you know, like it's, pa- it, it's like it's, it's all it's like they're powerful choices you get to make. And I'm just talking about, you know, rocks and jumping off of them. But then when you're writing about gender, or the environment or race or like other issues, you just real I like I think it's interesting to just see how people use language. Yeah, I agree. That I'm. I mean, we had a good conversation about humor when we were on the boat.
1: We did. Yeah, yeah I remember that. I don't remember exactly what we said. I don't either. Not, <laughs> that's like not interesting. Uh, po- hey, we had a conversation that we can't remember, and we won't share with you, <laughs> listeners. Um, but so I wanted to ask you what you're working on here at Blue Mountain Center. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I came here, and I had a lot of different things I, I thought I might work on, um, and then um, when we went around the table the first night, and it was like, okay, what are, what are you working on here? I said I just didn't know because I I wasn't sure, and I've just been letting, uh, I, but I but I've been known been I've known that I've wanted to think more about my relationship to the environment and so um I think that what's come of working that since I've been here I've been I've been um I've started to write some poems that are um about uh let me see think about how to describe it um Well, I read. I read. I've been reading a lot of great books. I read Robin Wall Kimmerer's uh, *Braiding Sweetgrass*, and so thinking, been thinking a lot about interdependence um, in terms of uh, like how people and the environment were all interdependently connected, and and like um, what it might mean to like experience reciprocity with things in our environment. And then I've been thinking about like, well, how how can poems um, convey those dynamics and and so I've been experimenting with writing poems that do that so I wrote a poem um, about drinking water out of the lake and um, what and thinking about my relationship to the lake um, and I've been thinking a lot about like ways that as people were disturbing the environment, but I've also been trying to think about ways that, um, whether it's through gratitude or, or attention or, uh, clearing a path, like ways that, um, we also give back to, to
1: land. So, um, you said that you've been wanting to explore more your relationship with the environment and that's something that's, propelled your work while you're yeah. here, what, but it, just from reading some of your work from before you were here, it seems like you've always been interested in nature.
2: That's such, and... you're, that's an astute point, because I just realized that the other day, but it seems like you already figured that out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that you just realized the other day that I, well, you've always been into nature?
2: Yeah, like, oh, my, all, all the poems I've been writing always, I'm always, ri- I'm often writing about nature. Um... Maybe I'm, in a way I can't even describe yet, I'm just moving in a slightly different direction with it. Um, I have, like, have been really interested um, in in writing poems about biodiversity and, and thinking about biodiversity as a way to just think about um, difference, not only in terms of uh, animals, but also people, and so there's this great book called Biological Exuberance that talks about um, sexuality and difference and diversity. And, and I like sort of asking, like, what's natural or mm-hmm. what's normal? Um, so in that way, I've definitely been thinking about nature. For a long time. Yeah, I guess I have. Maybe I've been trying to think, especially being here, to, like, be more literate of of the natural world in when I'm having a local experience, so it's one thing to be writing about the environment, and just just for the heck of it, but it's another thing to be able to actually describe what is immediately in my environment. So I I think it's fun to to work on that. If that makes sense. Um, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah.
1: It seems something else that I've noticed about your work and just being in the same space with you for a month is that you seem to have. There's a lot of process that goes into your (laughs) poetry. Um, And, you know, whether that's like while you were here at BMC visiting the loon every day (laughs) and reading Robin Kimmerer's book and all of this stuff. But um, also in your presentation and application, you talked about this poem um, that you wrote where you you did research by talking to taxidermists mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. going on message boards of hunters.
2: And that's and, right, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: I just wanted to... So uh, what what is
2: your process usually? In- I feel like I have to... Um, uh, I, I sort of think of it sometimes like um, there's two different energies when I'm working, and one is where I and it's this place where I often start is that I really need to go out of myself. Um, and the other energy is to go in. And so the going out part for me is the just reading, engaging, interacting, having conversations with people, researching stuff, trying to figure out random names and pieces of information and, um, how many loon calls there are, and what they all mean, and um, what might that mean. And then once I and I and when I'm and during that time, I'm just sort of have a document open on, on my computer where I'm just sort of um, gathering, I'm just like gathering things around me, and not really knowing why or what they're what for. And then I like at some point start to sort of figure out a form or can kind of see a shape of what I'm making. And then once I sort of can see that, then I'm like, okay, now it's time to go in. And then when I go in, then I'm just, um, it's just me and the page just like writing and tinkering and making a poem and reading it aloud a lot and seeing if it sounds, sounds right. Yeah
1: what it, can i ask uh what it was like to interview a taxidermist
2: yeah well, it was actually really casual um so it wasn't as like awesome as this interview that we're doing right now <laughs> that i'm so, um i i was uh um at a, uh i was i was actually at a writing residency in nebraska and um and there was a local nature center. And I liked to go there and just look at stuff. And but most of the most of the um, exhibits in this little nature center were um, almost like dioramas with taxidermied local animals. Um, and I read this Robert Penwarren poem called Audubon that kind of talks about Audubon and how you know he had to he like but to make the paintings. He, you know, killed the birds. And so that sort of relationship between making and also um, destroying something at the same time, I was like thinking about that and thinking about how um, a taxidermied animal is is something that, like, I I, I feel, like, disgust sometimes when I'm looking at it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't look at death this way. Um, I have, like, a visceral reaction, but I'm also like, oh, but someone made this, and in making this, they were thinking uh there's a, like, kind of love that went into it. Um, anyway, I'm, to get back to your question, I realized that on the on the second floor of this place um, were all of these journals and taxidermy books that belonged to someone in, in this funny nature center, and so I I asked someone who worked there, "What is, what are all these? What are, what's this archive?" And it's, oh, this guy lives in town. He's a hundred-year-old taxidermist. He might stop by. And then one day he stopped by, and I, and I asked him, you know, how did you make that, that, that bird, or um, how, how did you, you know? I learned that like he did a lot of things. He felt like he wasn't, like, he felt like he, he he saw his work as environmental, like, like as though he were a scientist trying to, with that kind of exactitude, and he thought that some people that did taxidermy did it in sort of a cheap way to just sort of, like, trophy, like, look at this thing I shot.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah. I've never heard, I guess, taxidermy described that way. Yeah. But there is, I mean, there's taxidermy in most museums. Right. So, there is this kind of
2: documentarian aspect to it. Yeah. Yeah, and I try to, like, when I'm, I try to, like, think about anything I'm making from as many sides as I can and know that there's usually paradoxes in it.
1: Another thing that kind of jumped out at me during your presentation. was how much you talked about form mm-hmm. and how much you seemed to be interested in mm-hmm. poetic form. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me a little bit about that?
2: I feel like I've I have had a few experiences where I've just went full tilt into form, just being like, well, what will this be like? And, and I wrote this long sonnet sequence called Aria. And when I was writing that poem, I realized that... Um, I was afraid that writing a form might just mean like just kind of, um, taking some kind of received, um, vessel and that I would just be kind of like repeating a tradition without, um, that I wasn't sure I would have any relationship to and, and cause all forms come, have come from different traditions, whether you're, um, writing in free verse or whether you're writing, um, a sonnet or. Or a form you make up, you know, then you know, then that's interesting too. But even when you're making up something, there's probably someone who might have made up something similar at some point. And so it's like interesting to figure out who you're in conversation with, even if you're not aware of it. But anyway, I've found that when I'm writing in forms, it, um, it, it often pushes me to surprise myself. And when I was writing this poem, Aria, I knew that I wanted to write about um, music and uh, the body And so I thought, well, if I take this form, the sonnet, and write in this, like, try to write in iambic pentameter, which felt like I'd be sort of, like, pushing up against my impulses, like, what would happen? And what I found was really interesting is that when you, um, is that when you create a pattern, the reader or listener hears it, and and I think that we find pleasure in patterns. We're like, oh, that's... Okay. Um but then we we get surprised when the pattern gets disrupted. And so so I like playing with form because I get to like um work with pattern and then often my favorite parts are when I surprise myself when disrupting something and I'm like, "Oh, like I Oh, wow, that part of the poem turned out really squeaky and I didn't expect it to." <laughs> like, what was going on there? And then and then and then I learned something about myself, even if it's like I made a, I like made a sound I didn't expect I would make. I like made a like a, it's like a, a line that sounds like a, a bird call or something.
1: so do you think you surprise yourself more when you have boundaries Bound- yeah.
2: yeah yeah, absolutely um, and sometimes I feel like I like to write in a really tight form um, and then almost like a, like an accordion, like I like to get like really compress myself, and then and then when I'm and then what's fun is like after a finished poem like that, then the next poem I write will usually just be have really long lines, and I sort of then we'll move the opposite way. Um, but I like that sort of compression and contraction and trying it all out and seeing what happens. Yeah. Um, and the the.
1: Maybe this has changed because you haven't talked about it, but you were also talking about maybe inventing some of your own forms.
2: Yeah, I've been working on trying to create... I've been trying to come up with forms that um, are in response to the natural world. And so um, since I've been here at Blue Mountain um, and just feeling totally seduced by the loon, um, the loons on the lake... um, I thought, well, gosh, the tremolo is such an interesting call that the loon makes. And it's one that's this like territorial cry and thinking about um, how, how could I cry, like come up with a form of, poem, of poetry that would be a, a response to the environment that would sort of carry that um, sense of alarm um, that I hear in the, when the loon makes the tremolo. And so I've been experimenting with, like, making something that's... I wrote a poem that was... I wrote a poem called, here, called Trimolo for a Call Stuck in a Loon's Throat. Um, Because I saw the loon sitting on the nest with its um, mouth, like, half open. And it didn't make a sound. And it just looked like it was about to make a sound. And I thought, whoa. So... (laughs) Um, so I tried to write about that in this, and then the form I made up kind of, it was like the beginning of the line and the end of the line had to have a slant rhyme. What's a slant rhyme? An almost rhyme. Okay. So rather than, um, so I would slant something like, I mean, so like pass and slant. That's, well, that's that maybe actually just kind of assonance. Past, past and slant. They, like, almost rhyme, but not quite, whereas, like, blue and two, like, more exact rhymes. So, almost rhymes, I think, sometimes are a little more surprising. So, I was playing with that. And I just basically made a really hard puzzle for myself, and I'm not that happy with the poem yet. Um, But I'm just going to keep trying, because language can't quite mimic nature, because the things around us are all speaking their own languages. So anything I come up with that's in response to nature is going to be kind of a bad translation. But maybe it doesn't have to be totally mimicking it. So I'm sort of, you can see I'm still figuring it out. Um, but it's been fun to figure it out here.
1: Yeah, it's fun to hear you talk about it,
2: too. Yeah, we'll see. That'll be to be continued. <laughs>
1: Next time. Next time. Um... I was, uh, wondering if you would mind reading a poem while oh. you're here. I, ha- I have Oh, some. yeah, sure. You I'll can read, pick whichever one you want I'll too. read whichever, whatever you want. How much time do we have? Uh, as much as we want, but... Do
2: you want me to should... read the one you like? Sure, yeah. Yeah. Do I just talk into her? Yeah, just like you have been. <laughs> <laughs> in the dream. Uh, and all I'll say about this poem is that it was based on a dream, and that's all I think you need. Oh, and that, um... And I think it helps if the listener visualizes uh, a dike dive bar in outer space. Or whatever dive bar you know, and just imagine it in outer space. In the dream. I was alone in a dike bar we'd traversed before. Or maybe it was, in a way, all our dives, merging together suddenly as one intergalactic composite one glitter-spritzed black hole, one cue-stick burnished down to a soft blue nub. Picture an open cluster of stars, managing to forever stabilize in space, without a landlord scheming to shut the place down. Anyways, I was searching for someone there that we hadn't seen in years, in what could have been sisters, babes, the Lex, the Pint, the Palms, or the E-Room, But the room had no end and no ceiling. Though I could see all our friends or exes with elbows up or fingers interlocked on tabletops zinging with boomerangs, maybe the tables were spinning too, I can't be sure. But just as a snap trap that trips before hammering a mouse is not humane, the dream changed or the alarm that I carry in my breast pocket in my waking life was sounding. Because in the dream, three people on bar stools, who were straight or closeted, but more importantly angry, turned and the room shrank like a sweater full of moths, ready to eat holes through wool. Or, they were humans, sure, but not here to love, with jawlines set to throw epithets like darts that might stick or nick or flutter past as erratically as they were fired you could say they were a polyatomic blur of the stress that a body meticulously stores. Like how, when I was shoved in grade school on the black top in my boy jeans, the teacher asked me if I had a strawberry. Because the wound was fresh as jam, glistening like pulp does after the skin of a fruit is peeled back clean with a knife. I was in the dream as opened the elements, and yet. I fired back, and I didn't care who eyed me like sheet metal that needed to be bent square. Instead, I said, do you realize where you are? And with one finger, I called our family forth, and out of the strobe lights, they came. (laughs) Thank you. Sure. (laughs) Um, One of the things I realized when writing that poem is that... um, it's it's really hard to write a poem about a dream because you know you wake up from a dream and you're like oh my gosh I had this crazy dream and and you tell someone about it and 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 it's never that interesting mm-hmm. when, t- when mm-hmm. someone tells you about their dream and they're kind of like yeah great but but like how how do you really experience a dream so I found that writing a dream poem just as hard as writing any po- any poem. <laughs> <laughs> Just because you had a crazy dream doesn't mean anyone cares. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but it's going to be interesting to hear. It is interesting to hear. Yeah. I mean, it's
1: a good poem.
2: Yeah, but I'm saying, like, I realized that I had, I like, I... It took many drafts to try to capture the vibe.
1: Were there details in the dream that didn't make it into the poem?
2: N- no, it all made it in, but I, um... But I, I I had to like remember and remember and remember and then try to um, try to try to find the right words to capture it. Like I think I spent a long time like figuring out um, the tabletop zinging with boomerangs. Like how to describe this like tabletop in this outer space bar that I remembered. And then and then I it was hard to figure out because in because you know how dreams sometimes they just skip from one thing to another and you're in like, you're having like one emotional experience and suddenly you're having a totally different one. And so I I was like, how do I, so I was like, how am I going to like, like the poem kind of shifts from like, um, one kind of feeling of being in this space to then suddenly there's like a threat and like how to, how to convey the sort of abruptness of it. Um, yeah <laughs> so
1: earlier when you were describing your process, you talked about the outward and the inward, yeah, this seems like a pretty inward was That's there true research yeah. or that outward process that went into this?
2: um, only the stuff where I was like writing a little bit about space <laughs> it's like, um like is that true you know about a cluster of stars you know just sort of like fact checking checking myself I think it's funny to be fact checking poems but I definitely do that because I imagine if somebody might be like I don't know might think that I doesn't mean, make I, any sense as an image
1: I feel like just in the last month whenever you've read a poem or talked about a poem or something I feel like I'm always learning really strange facts <laughs> Like, I mean, I've learned about, like, the velvet horned deer mm-hmm. and the frog that births its children through mm-hmm. its mouth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and star clusters <laughs> and loon calls and, yeah, it's it's an educational experience because well, you're a teacher and <laughs> a poet. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just made that up on the spot.
2: I wasn't playing well, with that. Well, um, that's that's awesome (laughs) um i i just think there's so many like um details in the world that uh are amazing and then um and then they find them their way into poems that i'm writing and then i just have to tell people about them (laughs) yeah yeah so it's great I'm glad that you found them interesting. That you sh- that you sh- that you share an interest in learning about um, gastric brooding frogs.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know that I would have ever sought that information yeah. out on my own, <laughs> but I'm really excited that you brought it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a totally random question, sure. but uh, in this poem, when you say sisters, are you talking about sisters in Philadelphia?
2: Do you know it's closed? Yeah. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things I was thinking about when writing this poem is just how many, um, dyke bars are closing. Um, so even as we live in a really, you know, in some ways really exciting moment where, um, same-sex marriage is now our right, that there are these, like, um, queer and feminist spaces that are disappearing. Um, and I, I think it might in some ways because of like the internet people can find date that way, or maybe it just doesn't feel, maybe people don't feel like they have to go to like, um, a lesbian bar to like, I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe it's just, it's like a general thing, but, um, but yeah, like, um, the Lex is a bar. So I said, sisters, babes, the Lex, the pint, the palms or the E room. And the Lex is a bar in San Francisco that I think is about to close. And the E room is in Portland and it, I think it closed. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah. so that, so, so that was another thing I was thinking about in this poem is of like, um, even with the sort of a landlord scheming to shut the place down is that, you know, maybe that some of these spaces are maybe just going to be dream spaces that don't exist in the, you know, that there are other kinds of spaces that will exist, but that those kinds of bars may become non-existent. Mm -hmm.
1: Where have you frequented a lot of
2: these (laughs) dyke bars? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like going to, um, like I lived in the Bay area for a while and, um, as a, uh, someone growing up in a small town in Virginia, um, when, like, a good friend of mine and I from college, when we both moved to San Francisco, um, I just remember, like, us, like, sitting in the Lexington club in a corner just being, like, wow, like, wow, we're in the, wow, wow, look at all these queer people, oh my gosh, like, this is so exciting, um, so, so yeah, like find I I community finding spaces where you can meet people like I think that's really important. So and for me, like bars don't have to be that kind of space. For some people, bars really aren't that kind of space, but they've they've been a vital part of my way of meeting people and knowing people at times in my life.
1: I think that's most of what I wanted to ask you mm-hmm. about, but um do you have any highlights you want to share from your month at BMC? Oh gosh.
2: Let me think. Um, well speaking of Ben, Ben took me on a really wonderful walk where we I learned here that the 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 water at BMC comes from is spring fed and I wanted to know more about that. So Ben took me on a like a walk where we followed the source of up to the reser- the like reservoir house and then the the um, the old spring houses on the hillside and that was that was a magical walk. I would just say I've had a lot of magical walks and canoe trips. So just one-on-one time with people um, uh, in the in the environment. It's been my favorite moments cool and the creme brulee
1: of course (laughs) Uh, i haven't had the creme brulee because i'm lactose intolerant right but i've heard great things (laughs) um cool well thanks for coming tuning in to the blue mountain center podcast again we're getting a lot of good feedback it's a lot of fun Uh, thank you to ben and harriet and my co-host luke and thank you to jenny for coming in this week it was super fun to talk to you